What happened when Arthur Conan Doyle got to play Sherlock Holmes and not just write him? Margalit Fox joins us to talk about her new book, Conan Doyle for the Defense. What are the best thrillers to read this summer? My colleague Tina Jordan will be here to talk about the latest and greatest in crime, mystery, thrillers, and general intrigue. Plus, our critics Dwight Garner, Paul Sigel, and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Margalit Fox joins us now. Her new book is called Conan Doyle for the Defense, the true story of a sensational British murder, a quest for justice, and the world's most famous detective writer. Margo, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So we're going to talk a bit about this book, also about your previous work for The Times as one of our great obituary writers, and you've only just left to focus on narrative nonfiction books. But we'll start with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So tell us about the the story at the center of this book. The story at the center of the book is a true crime story of murder, wrongful conviction, and the personal investigation of the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Just before Christmas in 1908 in Glasgow, Scotland, a wealthy, reclusive, 82-year-old woman named Marion Gilchrist was found brutally murdered in her elegant Glasgow flat. The police very quickly settled upon a suspect, Arthur Slater, a 36-year-old German Jewish immigrant who was reported to earn his living as a gambler. Although the police learned within a week that Slater could not possibly have committed the crime, he was just the type of person they wanted to run out of their city anyway. So they framed him, they coached witnesses, they suborned perjury, they suppressed exculpatory evidence— And in the spring of 1909, Oscar Slater was convicted and sentenced to hang. He missed the gallows by 48 hours. In an incident that still gives me chills, he had made arrangements for his own burial and could hear the scaffold being erected outside his cell. There was enough public unease about the conviction, however, that two days before he was sentenced to die— His death sentence was commuted to life at hard labor. He spent the next 18 and a half years breaking up enormous blocks of granite at a godforsaken Victorian hellhouse of a prison in northern Scotland. He eventually smuggles out a message to Arthur Conan Doyle, who, besides being a crime fiction writer, is passionately interested in true crime and in social justice. Conan Doyle's personal reinvestigation of Oscar Slater's conviction wins Slater his freedom after 18 and a half years. Wow. Okay. Let's scroll back 18 and a half years or even more to the scene of the crime because Marion Gilchrist, as you mentioned, was a wealthy woman, and yet she was not fully robbed of her valuables at the time of her death. That's the striking thing. When police interviewed Miss Gilchrist's maid on the night of the murder, Gilchrist kept the equivalent of almost half a million dollars in today's American money in jewelry hidden in strange places around her flat, pinned behind curtains, tucked under carpets, things like that. But the maid said, despite that, 
only a single piece was missing, a crescent-shaped brooch set with diamonds. And woe betide Oscar Slater, by pure coincidence, he had pawned a crescent-shaped diamond brooch just at around that time. And that was all the pretext the police needed to arrest him, railroad him, convict him, and nearly hang him, even though they knew within about five days of the murder that the brooch Slater had pawned was entirely different from the one missing from the crime scene. So who was Oscar Slater and what made him such a useful victim victim here? Well, Oscar Slater was the platonic form for what the great historian Peter Gay called the convenient other. He was vastly different from the majority culture, the culture in power at that time or perhaps at any time. Mm -hmm. He was foreign. He was a Jew at a time in the first decade of the 20th century of heightened anti-Semitism and heightened anti-immigrant sensibilities. This is in the UK. This is in the UK, Mm -hmm. in England, but also then in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And so he was the ideal scapegoat in a climate of fear, uncertainty, the jarring feeling that modernity was giving people who had been used to in the Victorian era, the certainties of God, queen, and country, and those were being questioned and being disrupted. So it was a time of great social unease, and in such times, cultures look for a scapegoat. And what made him come under suspicion? Was it that the police had tapped into all of the pawn shops in the area? Like, how did he end up being accused of this crime? It was that, but it was something even more nefarious that happened before Miss Gilchrist's murder, before, in other words, Oscar Slater had ever heard the name Marion Gilchrist. When Slater arrived in Glasgow in the autumn of 1908, about six weeks or so before the murder, He was already known to police. He had lived there once or twice before in the very first years of the 20th century. And again, he was the poster child for the kind of man they wanted to run out of town. Foreign, Jewish, low class, a gambler of dubious livelihood. He occupied this kind of demimonde that frightened and horrified the bourgeois classes. So the police had their eye on Oscar Slater well before the murder. And as was proved, partly through Conan Doyle's work, they simply took this man that they wanted to get out of their city and rolled him into a high-profile murder that they were under pressure to close anyway. All right. So how do the police get away with this? I mean, what is the state of detecting and police investigation in Scotland at that time? Nothing like what we think of from our many TV forensic shows as being the state of detection today. What we would consider to be modern investigative forensics with state-of-the-art science, uh, high-functioning police laboratories, impressive protocols that everyone follows— That kind of criminal forensics did not even begin 
to come into its own until the 1930s and 1940s. So one of the great, great tragedies of the Oscar Slater case is had this whole thing happened 25 or 30 years later, it might have produced a very different outcome and one that would be much healthier and better for Slater. At this time, however, the investigation of criminal cases was at a watershed moment in history. Just starting to emerge and still really decades in the future were these modern techniques. Without those to really avail themselves of, the Glasgow police and prosecutors fell back on a time-honored Victorian way of targeting criminals, which was to target first, ask questions later, and surprise, surprise, the person you target is going to be substantially different from you, a different nationality, a different social class, a different religion. Was detective fiction sort of head of actual detective science at that time? Sherlock Holmes himself certainly was. And in fact, as I discuss in the book, a number of things that we take for granted in criminal investigation today and and for decades, things like the use of footprints, the analysis of dust traces, the analysis of cigarette and cigar ash, those are owed directly to the Sherlock Holmes stories. And when smart police departments around the world read those stories, they seized on those methods and adopted them. Where was Arthur Conan Doyle in his career at this time? How well known was he? How widely read was he? Like, was he a public figure at the time of the actual crime? Conan Doyle was born in 1859, and the first Sherlock Holmes stories were published in the late 1880s. So by 1908, the time of the Gilchrist murder, he was one of the most celebrated and influential men, not only in Britain, but in the world. And so what got him interested in this case? How did he become aware of it? And and, and was he so influential and well-known that you had prisoners sort of writing him letters all the time saying, you know, help me out. Members of the public absolutely wrote Conan Doyle letters asking him to solve real-life mysteries, deaths, disappearances, and so on. And Conan Doyle, as the book explains, took on a number of those cases, personally investigated them using Holmesian methods, and indeed solved a number of them. There's one disappearance from a London hotel Mm -hmm. where he actually was able to pinpoint why the man had disappeared and where he had gone. Another was a murder that the police had not been able to solve for four or five years. He knew, simply based on hearing a narrative of the crime, where this murder victim's body was buried. He got involved in the Oscar Slater case in 1912, so about three years after the initial conviction, At the behest of Oscar Slater's lawyers, he reinvestigated the case, wrote a scathing indictment of the conduct of police and prosecutors, published in 1912. But there was still such high public sentiment against Slater, and Mm -hmm. the murder was still so fresh. It had been one of the most sensational, high-profile murders in remotely recent British history that Even notwithstanding Conan Doyle's lucid dismantling of the case, 
nothing could be done, and Slater remained where he was. So Slater kept breaking up granite and being served thin broth and gruel day in and day out. Then in 1925, Slater manages to smuggle a message, and I've seen it. I've actually held it. It's written on a fragment of brown tissue paper. He gave it to a fellow convict who was his friend, a man named William Gordon, who was being paroled in January 1925, and God bless him, William Gordon wore dentures. So Slater rolled this message into a tiny pellet, pinched a piece of glazed paper from the prison's bookbinding shop, mm-hmm. rolled it around the message to keep it dry, popped it under Gordon's dentures, and although prison officials made a thorough search of Gordon on releasing him, it didn't occur to anyone to examine his gums. I don't know how excited I would have been about touching this particular piece of paper, Margot. <laughs> well, thank goodness for the piece of glazed paper. And by the time I saw it, of course, it was archivally preserved in acetate. So I didn't actually get to have William Gordon's century-old saliva on my fingers. <laughs> but the message says, go see Conan Doyle. And William Gordon did. Conan Doyle was moved to take up the case again. And this time, enough time had elapsed and enough momentum gathered in support of Slater that in late 1927, after 18 and a half years in prison, Slater walked out of the gates a free man. All right, let's talk about his reinvestigation of the case because he started that three years, as you said, after the conviction. But like, what was available to him to investigate. Was the Glasgow police required to keep meticulous paperwork? Was that paperwork public? How could he go and reinvestigate what they had done? Relatively little was public. And of course, the crime scene itself was long gone. So Conan Doyle investigated the case in the way he knew best, in the way his most famous creation would have done through rigorous logic. He got as much paperwork as he could. There were trial transcripts that he had some sympathetic journalists working as his legmen, getting him witness statements. And eventually he was able to get some suppressed materials, but by no means all. But simply by combing the record that was there for the taking, He found all sorts of inconsistencies in witnesses changing their testimony. He found the suppression of exculpatory evidence. For instance, it was known uh, by then that one of Slater's neighbors on the night that Slater was supposed to have committed the murder, raced out into the streets of Glasgow like a madman and woven up and down the streets to evade capture before plunging into the Glasgow subway and escaping by riding out of town. The night he was supposed to have done that, one of Slater's neighbors saw him standing on his own doorstep right around that time, calmly smoking. And it was clear that that would have been a superb alibi for Slater. The police and prosecutors knew of this neighbor's testimony. He was never called at trial. It was suppressed. So Conan Doyle found all sorts of examples like that of 
real malfeasance. So this is like a story within a story within a story within a story, right? You have the original crime. You have the the story created around that crime by the police at the time. You have then the reinvestigation by Conan Doyle, then the story that happens after the conviction, and then again, his reinvestigation. And of course, you have the story of you coming across this story and then writing up. How did you become interested in it? That itself is indeed a story. I first came upon this case more than 30 years ago when I had first come to New York after graduate school. I was working at an uninspiring entry-level job in book publishing and riding the subway to work one day. The book I had brought with me was John Dixon Carr's biography of Conan Doyle. It was published in 1949. And toward the end of the book, almost as an aside, Carr casually says something like, oh, by the way, Sir Arthur also personally investigated a real-life wrongful conviction for murder and had this poor Jewish immigrant freed after almost 20 years in prison. And I almost dropped the book on the middle of the A-train. Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of the most famous fictional detective in the world, had successfully investigated a real-life murder, I thought, why on earth wasn't this case better known? And as I would discover, every Conan Doyle biography, and there are probably dozens, has anywhere from a paragraph to a chapter on the Slater case. But in America, anyway, there are no freestanding books on the case, and there are relatively few in Britain. It just seems to be something that fell into a crevice in history. Now, 30 years ago, I was not in a position to do anything about it. I had not even gone to journalism school yet, much What did you go to graduate school for? Linguistics. Okay. So not much help in this case, although fascinating in its own right. And so I filed it away in the back of my brain. And then in 2013, when my previous book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, came out and I was casting about for something to do, there was the Oscar Slater story still in that corner of what Holmes calls the brain attic. And I thought, aha, I'm finally in a position to tell this story. So your day job until very recently was as a writer on the obituary desk. You're also a previous staffer at the Book Review. Was there any way in which that work at the Times on obituaries sort of helped in writing this book? Absolutely. The best line on what an obituary writer does came from one of my sisters who is a poet, and she loves to enter flash fiction contests where you have to write a whole novel in 100 words. I think it's completely nuts, but she likes it. She called me <laughs> but up. But it's really the same thing in a way as what you're, I mean. Exactly. Okay. She called me up in the newsroom one day just to say hello, and when I picked up the phone, she said, so How's the flash biography business coming? Mm -hmm. And I thought, my God, it took a poet to make me understand deeply what it is I do. And so Conan Doyle for the Defense, which is in a sense a partial biography, both of Conan Doyle and of Slater himself, who had by and large been lost to history, these book-length biographies are just the thousand-word bios that we do every day in obits, gridded up about a hundred times. Here on the podcast, on the Book Review podcast, an ongoing theme is something we call the obit read, which is is not about reading obituaries, but about reading books after having read 
obituaries. And I will often fold up the obit that caused me to or led me to read a book and put it in the book itself. And then I come upon it years later. And I think the first time I did this was with the Times's full page, now very rare, but full page biography of William Maxwell, which led me directly to They Came Like Swallows. So I have to ask for you on the obit's desk, did that happen to you where you sort of were constantly picking up books because you had written the obits or read other people's obits? Well, we on obits have the hyped up caffeinated speed version of that, where especially for breaking news obits, daily obits written on deadline like any other story in the paper, where we don't have an advance obit on file for person X. If it is someone who's produced a lot of books, obviously, if the piece has to be filed in six hours or four hours or one hour, we can't sit there and read his or her body of work. So you speed read secondary sources, reference Mm -hmm. works like contemporary authors. And then indeed, if you're still on speaking terms with your subject and you're not so exhausted by the mad sprint of deadline, you may want to go back and explore that person's work on your own time. But Obitz makes it hard because the next day, you're on to somebody else, and the whole thing starts all over again. What is an advance obit? An advance obit is just as it sounds. It is an obituary that is written, as we say, on a pre-need basis while its subject is still alive. Obviously, what is missing from an advance obit is the where and when of the death. That, of course, will only get filled in when the subject slips out of this world and the advance obit becomes a breaking news obit. We prepare advance obits and we have probably about 1,900 on file. Wow. People just, you're just waiting for them to die. Well, it's a Sisyphean job for Bill McDonald, the Times Obituaries editor, because there are an awful lot of newsworthy undead and our staff is relatively small. and Pre-dead. Exactly. The pre-dead. The world for me divided for the 14 years I was on obits into the dead and the pre-dead. Those are the only two salient categories. But uh, newspapers and we try to prepare advance obits for people whose body of work is so vast, so complex and so important that we don't want to get caught short doing the frantic caffeinated speed reading dance on deadline. Although, of course, Since when somebody goes is in the lap of the gods, it does happen sometimes. But ideally, you've had the luxury of a a week or sometimes two weeks to really read someone's body of work, see the films he or she made, whatever. Really think deeply, interview secondary sources, sometimes even interview your subject if he or she is in good shape and willing That's an awkward call to make, I would imagine. I mean, what would you say if you're calling up someone in his 90s? It is true that there is absolutely no Emily Post for the situation that basically boils down to, hi, you don't know me. I'm cold calling you. We know you're going to die relatively soon. We'd like to talk to you and then put it where a couple of million people can see it. So I rely on a wonderful euphemism from the great mid-century times obit writer Alden Whitman, and it has helped me many a time. He would call people up and say, this is Whitman from the Times. We're updating your biographical file. And then people can 
assimilate as much as they can psychologically handle. They know what it is. Right. But that's a lovely way to phrase it. Exactly. And I did that to a wonderful woman. I wish I could tell you what she had done, but we're not permitted to. But she had invented something really great that changed 20th century culture. And someday, I hope a long time from now, you will read about her. But she was and is already well into her 90s. She's now 95, 96. So I called her up Oh, maybe a year ago, very delicately, this is Fox of the Times, we're updating your biographical file, to which she chirped gaily, oh, you mean you're writing my obituary. So some people are down with it. That's excellent. <laughs> so it it works out that you have obits in various kind of areas, right? The scientists, the inventors, the public figures, the diplomats, et cetera. And I know you have one for books. And maybe this is a very indelicate question, but you don't work here anymore. So perhaps you'll be willing to answer. But were there or are there writers that you really wanted to write about? Absolutely. And we obit writers, both for the breaking news daily obits that are done on deadline and for the long-term advance ones, we are paid to be generalists and come off the bench and be quick studies in any field. And I've literally done obits on belly dancers, underwater cartographers, you know, the president of Estonia. Those are literally all ones I've done. But that said, the editors know it's in their interest to try to match a writer with things in his or her wheelhouse. So my academic training was in linguistics, and before that, I trained as a cellist. So they give me both daily obits and advance obits for the dead or pre-dead linguists and the dead or pre-dead classical musicians. And to some extent, because I was in the book review, dead or pre-dead writers as well. And were there any writers that you especially enjoyed writing about? I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you because the Times... But I'm pre-dead. Ah, but the Times, as you know, is not permitted to comment on the content of any forthcoming news article. And if you think about it, an advance obit is the ultimate forthcoming news article. So in deference to my old section and to my present colleagues, I am going to seal my lips on that point. Well, we're not allowed to do that with forthcoming books, really. So I will close with your not forthcoming book. It's out now. It's called Conan Doyle for the Defense, the true story of a sensational British murder, a quest for justice and the world's most famous detective writer by Marguerite Fox out now. Margo, thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be back. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Tina Jordan joins us now to talk about this week's special thrills and chills issue. Tina, thanks for being here. Sure. So I love putting together a thrillers issue in the summer. Obviously, you were game to sort of oversee this issue. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in the world of thrillers this season. Well, I think as often happens, like in tumultuous times, People turn to escapist reading and escapist TV watching and escapist movie watching. And we know from places like the Boston Public Library and the New York Public Library that 
thrillers are making up like 30% of their checked out books. Wow. Which is astonishing to me. Well, at the top of the bestseller list, we still have a thriller now for five weeks straight, Bill Clinton and James Patterson's The President is Missing. That doesn't surprise me. Does that surprise you? I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked either. I actually read that book and I I don't know what I was expecting, but I, I enjoyed it. Do you like thrillers in general? I do. I love thrillers. And before before I came in to talk to you here, I was trying to think to myself, what is it about them that appeals to me so much? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like a lot of people, it's a way to like plumb really deep fears I have because a lot of these thrillers, they're set like in our houses and at work and when we're on vacation, mm-hmm. all these places that we think of as safe. Right. And so... We are sort of vicariously able to like work out our, I don't know, nervousness, watching this <laughs> anxiety, to other our deepest fears. There are a lot of different kinds of thrillers. Yeah. You have the domestic thriller, the psychological thriller, psychological suspense, military thriller, action thriller, science fiction thriller. What am I missing? Romance thriller. Mm-hmm. And and you know, it's sort of strange to like wedge them into those little subgenres because I think the bigger point is that obviously the range of human emotions can be captured in any genre, but they're just so compelling in thrillers because they get your adrenaline going. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. I mean, I think that a great thriller, like a great suspense novel or procedural, the writer, when it's done very well, weaves in a lot of human psychology in there and a lot of very close observation about human behavior. You know, it's not quite a thriller, but, you know, Tana French, for example, or Kate Atkinson, Jackson Brody novel, those are more suspense. But like there is a lot of insight into sort of way people operate. Right. And I think a lot of thriller writers are and crime writers are looking at this very basic question about what makes somebody evil? You know, what makes them a psychopath? Why do they kill? Like, are they born that way? Are they made? Like, that's sort of like at the heart of all these books. And the best writers do study psychology. Well, also, I mean, are they all evil? Or are they also maybe just like us? Sometimes they're just like us, you see. So this year, we have a new Megan Abbott novel, Give Me Your Hand. And I feel like she's sort of been building a real audience over the recent years. And I know you're a fan. I'm a fan. She is channeling female rage. What she does is she looks at what happens to women, usually young women, in very specific hothouse atmospheres. Right. Like she did gymnastics. The world of gymnastics, the world of cheerleading. And in this one, she's in a very cutthroat, high-stakes university lab where two young female scientists are competing against one another. And she's just sort of looking at what happens when you put people together in situations like that, combustible situations, so I should psychological say. insight into yeah. young women. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite Megan Abbott novel? Oh, my gosh. That is a tough one. I actually, I think I might like this new one, Give Me Your Hand, the best. And I, I think it's because I thought about being in academia, and it's a world I know a little bit, and I just felt that she captured it so perfectly. Because people who are not in academia don't understand how high stakes it is. I mean, mm-hmm. the characters in this this novel, they're they're postdocs. They don't even have a position yet. And if academia is a pyramid, they're like at the bottom. They're just like scrabbling to get up. 
One of the things that seems to be happening in the world of thrillers, and I think we kind of alluded to this earlier, is there's so much genre blending and mm-hmm. genre crossing. And a lot of literary thrillers, I guess for lack of a better term, seem to be coming out in recent years where right. so-called literary writers are saying, like, why can't I do this too? Or take aspects of a traditional thriller and incorporate, like weave that into... sure. I mean, isn't that what Kate Atkinson is doing? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we used her name. You know, John Banville writes them under another name. Who are your favorite thriller writers? Oh, my gosh. That's really hard. I think my all-time favorite right now, series-wise, is Lee Child because I have such a crush like so many women on Jack Reacher. <laughs> and I just love those books. Well, you got to talk to Lee Child on a special bonus episode of the Book Review Podcast this week. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But first, tell us about the Jack Reacher novels and what distinguishes them. What distinguishes them is that the main character, Jack Reacher, if there's anybody out there who hasn't read a Reacher novel, He's completely, he has, he's not tethered by anything. He's a retired military policeman. We really never know where he gets his money from and how he can just like, you know, hitchhike around the country with a toothbrush in his pocket solving crimes. He's almost like a mythic Old West character. He's not an alcoholic, depressed, morose detective. <laughs> <laughs> like so many like of them so are. Like so many of them are, right? Like he's not worn down by this world. Right. He's not worn down by this world. One other thing in this issue that I really loved, which you did together with a graphic artist, which was to create a kind of global map of thrillers. And I think for people who think of thrillers as a very American genre or think about it in terms of, you know, Gone Girl and the Girl on the Train, this shows us a very different portrait of thrillers, where they're written, where they come from, where they take place. Right. And I talked a lot to Marilyn Stasio, our crime writer, because she's interested in thrillers written around the world, too. And I started to read them, and I started to realize how many there are now in translation from Chile, from Thailand, from, you know, South Africa. And when you read them, because unlike certain genres say literary fiction Mm -hmm. setting is always is not so important but it's really important in a thriller and a crime novel all right and so you you're there you know i've got to just draw a picture for our listeners who are not necessarily looking at this great thriller map all the world's a crime because what you did was you actually took a map of the world and uh continent by continent showed us where different novels are set or written or where the author's from? How did you do this? I Where they're set. Mm-hmm. And I tried in all cases to, if there were more than one good example, I tried to use the the example where the, the author was from that country. So give us some examples. Maybe let's look at the continent of Africa. Africa is really interesting because I had read the number one ladies detective agency novels by Alexander McCall Smith as they Mm -hmm. had come out. But I didn't really realize that there were other interesting series set there. Well, where is that one set? Botswana. Okay. Set in Botswana. So I'm going to butcher some of these names, but I discovered a series set in Ghana Mm -hmm. by someone named Kwai Karti, Q-U-A-R-T-E-Y. I loved those books. What are the names of some of them? Children of the Street is the one that I recommend people start with. Okay. 
And there's a South African thriller writer named Jesse McKenzie who has a series set in Johannesburg. And I'm recommending the one called Random Violence. And I, you know, the more I just started to look, the more I was like, their series set in Zimbabwe, you know, in Morocco, everywhere. So we've heard a lot about Nordic noir. Right. I bet you had fun with Scandinavia. I had a lot of fun with Scandinavia, and basically it was impossible, <laughs> you know. Although I did find only one novel set in Greenland. And I don't know if you remember Peter Haig's Smilla's Sense of Snow. Yes. Yeah. That caused grief to the mapmaker because I I had to keep to explain to him that it's owned by Denmark. So it had to go, Greenland had to go under Denmark, which ah, was yeah, interesting. confusing. But yes, it's it's incredibly difficult to choose, you know, when you're looking at the Scandinavian countries. I don't want to suggest that all Scandinavian countries are alike, because I know that they aren't. Right. But is there, like, as a reader, were you able to kind of distinguish, let's say, the Danish thriller from the Norwegian? Well, let me tell you, they're all dark. Yes. And the, the Norwegian ones are the darkest of all. Now, I don't know if that's because more of Norway is above the Arctic Circle and it is dark there more, but those are bleak. So that is, that's Joe Nesbo territory. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Joe Nesbo? You know, I didn't actually use him for Norway because I discovered somebody I liked better and named, I'm going to butcher this too, Jorgen Breke, B-R-E-K-K-E. And his books are set in Trondheim, which is, I think, pretty far up the Norwegian coast, and I read one called The Fifth Element, which I loved. What's that about? Murder, as always, you know, and a, and a beleaguered detective who's from A depressed from there, alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> a depressed alcoholic, right. Let's talk a little bit about some of the thriller writers you talked to this week on our bonus episode. That was so interesting because I had in the studio separately Lee Child, Lisa Scottolini, Lisa Gardner, Megan Abbott, and Meg Gardner. And I, I didn't really know what to expect. I was talking to them about process. And what surprised me the most is like how differently each one of them approaches writing. The theme of the episode is the art of writing a thriller. And this was coincided with something called Thriller Fest. What so is called, that? Thriller Fest is the annual gathering of thriller writers that happens every summer in New York City at the Grand Hyatt. What do people do there? Who goes? Well, they all go. Every major thriller writer goes and they have workshops. You know, somebody from the FBI will be conducting a workshop telling them about the latest forensic technology, you know, because they have to stay really up on technology, as you might imagine. I mean, Great thrillers need smart characters because you're not going to solve a crime without smarts, but they can't ignore technology. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of what they study at Thriller Fest. That goes all the way back to the very beginnings of right. detective and, and thriller right. writing that you have to be up on the latest in forensic. You do. And it strikes me that there's a lot of mentoring going on. Mm -hmm. It seems like a very tight-knit community. And a lot of the, the more famous writers are actively helping and working with the younger ones. And is it all writers who go or are there readers and fans as well? I think it's Thriller all Fest? writers. It's all writers. I mean, I'm sure there are hangers on there. I asked what it was like. I, I, I think I asked Matt Gardner, what's it like, you know, to be in a room or be around other people who spend all their time trying to come up with the perfect way to kill someone? Right. And she was like, hey, you know, they're really nice people. And then she told me an anecdote about being in a cafe and discussing a murder with how a murder was going to unspool with somebody else, you know. And then, you know, we're going to give him just so much of this to knock him out. And when he's almost unconscious and there was somebody sitting near her who, you know, thought 
she was for real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did not call the police, but he did get up and yell. All right. To give our listeners just a sneak preview of what they can expect on this bonus episode, tell us what was the question you were most eager to ask and of whom and in what room? <laughs> I uh, I was eager to ask Lee Child how he choreographed his fight scenes mm-hmm. because Reacher is so famous for like taking on four, five, six people and like winning. And when you read them, it's almost like watching a ballet except for with lots of blood and broken bones and dead people at the end. And Reacher is always victorious. And it turns out that Lee Child had to fight his way in and out of his neighborhood every day to go to school, and he was a big kid. His parents were very upwardly mobile. They got him into a good school. He was a bright kid, but he had to—he said that was like having a target on his back in his neighborhood, fought his way out and in every day. And so he literally, like, walked me through what you do if you're walking down the sidewalk, if you're a reacher, early child, and you see four people coming at you. Did you have to fight him? <laughs> oh, no. Have you ever met him? He's huge. He's like 6'6". Six, yes, six. yes. He also told me that he drinks scary amounts of coffee every day. So Lee Child is Jack Reacher. He is Jack Reacher, I think. That's the answer. All right. That and more on your bonus episode. And Tina, thanks so much for being here. Sure. Our critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Sagal, and Jennifer Salai, join us now to talk about what they're reading and criticizing. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Pamela. All right. Let's start with Paul. Mm-hmm. What did you read this week and review? I reviewed a book by Thomas Clerk called Interior. And as I was reviewing it, just to give you a sense of it, so it's this, it's this book about this, this writer who spent three years annotating all of his possessions. And... If I have a sort of predisposition to a book, it's always to something that shouldn't be a book or shouldn't be literature. And like this book, I, I, the minute I saw it, I read the premise. I was like, yes, this is for me. Something so eccentric, something a little strange. Does it work? You know, and it, 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 it kind of works. I think that he's in conversation with a lot of French writers and conceptual artists who have asked similar sorts of questions about like, how do we how do we describe the self? Right. Like, do we have to. Do we have to delve into ourselves emotionally? Do we have to write a memoir? Or can you really write a life by saying, these are my socks. This is my bathtub. It mm-hmm. takes 13 minutes to fill. It takes 27 steps from my couch to my fridge. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's 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 strange. But what was interesting to me also as I was reviewing it is that I felt, you know, um, that there's this new genre of writing about the self that's happening on the internet. This sort of flourishing of of lists of these people like sort of publishing their diaries. Here's my money diary. Here's my restaurant diary. Here's my beauty ritual. And I consume all of this content all of the time. Like talking about themselves I can't like get through the of lens it. of what they own and That's what right. they and like. In terms of objects, in terms yeah. of this. And sort of like I've felt that in the last couple of years, the personal essay has not gone completely out of fashion, but it's been questioned. People wrestled with it a little bit more. Um, and instead, this other sort of genre has risen up and it just felt this book interior can feel so French and so foreign, but it also felt like such a cousin to everything that I'm consuming all the time these days. And this new way of telling the story of the self, this new way of understanding and even refracting trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. So as you're reading the book, you're sort of trying to piece apart a story. You know, what is the story here? So okay, you're, we're walking through your apartment. We're seeing your bedroom. We're seeing your your study. These are your papers. These are your shoes. This memory of this. And as you're reading, you suddenly realize that, you know, 
at the heart of this story are these ghosts, are these sorts of deaths that he's he is mourning and he is looking at the world that he's been left in, in a sense. Going back to the the writing about mm-hmm. things and writing about the self through the stuff that mm-hmm. surrounds you, that's not just on the internet. You point out that that's happening in books as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's happening through a bunch of writers who also interestingly collaborate a lot together. Leanne Shapton wrote a beautiful book about a relationship with a title so long that I will muddle it if I if I do it here. But it's 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 a story of a fictional couple's breakup told in the form of an auction catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidi Julewitz's book Folded Clock, which is a diary, really sort of is structured around the appearance of these certain talismanic objects. Sheila Hetty, another person who has collaborated with both of them in this book called Women and Clothes, right. really, you know, talked to a bunch of women sort of getting a sense of their lives and the lives of their mothers and the lives of their friends through objects. Your, your mother's purse, these handful of hairpins, this dress you used to wear. Why do you think wear. we're doing that? I mean, what's the impulse? I mean, I think there are a few different things. One thing I think I sort of, I raise in the review is that it feels nostalgic. We live online a lot. And I think that there's something about tethering ourselves to the world again that can feel really necessary and can feel really important. So there's that contrast. The other way I think is that as people have been thinking a lot about memoirs and authenticity and truth and stuff like that, these questions are important, but they've muddied it, you know, and I think that there can be something easier or more purer, you feel, in sort of getting the story of somebody's life through these concrete objects. And, you know, that these are just sort of my guesses right now. I do know I enjoy reading them, which is a separate question. Is it is it something about consumerism, too, about the fact that we just have so much stuff and that we think that that stuff says something about us? I mean, I I mean, yeah, I'm sure on some level, I think I think maybe more than consumerism, I think people are thinking about taste. Mm-hmm. you know, and and the way that we try to sort of... But, you know, I, actually, I don't think so. I, I was about to go someplace where... I don't think these books are judgy about that. I don't mm-hmm. think that they're shaming people for consumerism necessarily. I think that they are tender about our fantasies for ourselves and our desires for ourselves. And sometimes the way that we dress and the things we own and things we keep for some people are very, very powerful ways that they express some of these feelings. It's like Marie Kondo, but... Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but Marie Kondo's whole thing is that she's full of love and yeah. reverence for objects. So, yeah, I, I think she's actually a cousin to a lot of this stuff, this, you know, the way we feel about what we possess. And does it possess us in turn? So you, your book, Jen, was also oddly about an object, a consumer object, one that goes away. Tell us about what the book you wrote yes. about. So the book is called Jello Girls, and it's by Ali Robottom. And it's sort of a combination of family memoir and cultural history. And so Robottom is the descendant of the Jell-O fortune. Her great, great, great uncle, I believe, bought the business in the late 1800s and then sold it in the 20s. And so when he sold it, he got something like $67 million for it. So that's a lot of money to fund several generations of heirs. So the book itself... I mean, it's it's very interesting because it's one of these things where I have to say that right at the beginning into this family memoir, she also brings up the town of Leroy where Jello was long produced. And she looks at the way in which these girls who several years ago started exhibiting Tourette's-like symptoms, like twitching, and... At the time, everybody was flummoxed. I mean, they weren't sure what was going on. And, you know, she brings in that history into her own family history and then ties it to the cultural history of Jell-O. And so right at the beginning, I'm thinking, oh, my God, (laughs) how how is this going to work? And 
to her credit, it actually really does. I mean, she's she's super ambitious in this book. I mean, she really tries to draw connections, and sometimes they're not always totally convincing. But you know, the way in which she sort of links together Jello is a product that sort of really tried to not only shape but also respond to the changing roles of women, and then also several generations of women in her own family. And then also what happened to these girls in Leroy. It's it's just a sort of really strange and remarkable book, I think. There was a line at the beginning of your review. I like to live in kind of willful ignorance of the origin of what I eat. But where... Oh, uh, do, do you... I mean, I, I'm not like a regular Jello eater, if that's what you're asking, right. but where you describe that it's ground up flesh and well, bones. Wait, yeah. Jello was ground up flesh and bones? Gelatin. Yeah. Yeah. It's made the gelatin. Did you make any during the process of reading? Well, this it's book so funny, actually, because it? I have to say, my, my reaction, even though it's, I feel like I found out maybe as a teenager that that's what Jello was. I, I don't think I ever thought about what it was. And it was when I was a teenager. And at the time, trying not to eat meat, and I was kind of disgusted. And now I eat meat again. And then reading this book, even though the book does not paint Jello in a nice light, at the end of it, I was like, you know, I haven't had Jello in a long time. I would, I kind of would like a Jello fruit salad, which I haven't I'm had yet. The same thing, actually. but yeah, that was sort of my. Uh, there, there was There's like that ambrosia, truly one of the weirdest salads of like mid-century America, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like is that it's the one like, with the deal where I come from? It's got fruit Fruits. and marshmallows and oh, that Jell-O, I don't know about that shaved one. coconut. All it's kinds actually of kind of good. It's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> a little shaved bone and coconut. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> right. So yeah, Jello, not vegetarian. I think they might have some. I mean, they've they've branched out into sort of different products, so they might have different. They have like a natural version. I'm not is sure. There a vegan natu- Jello out there? Yeah, I'm. I don't know if Jello makes it, but I'm sure that there's like a vegan gelatin dessert out there. But one thing I loved about, <laughs> like, I loved in your review is that you do discuss at a certain point how it became an emblem for a certain kind of femininity. <laughs> the food, right? Like, it's. I think you use the word dainty. Yes. And it's, <laughs> you know, it was just like clean and dainty and, and low modern. calorie yes. and modern yeah. and quick. Yeah, yeah it does I mean, feel like a mid-century modern kind of food. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, you know, she also sort of goes through how at one point it was really sort of dominating mm-hmm. the culture. And then it really fell out of style when it became too associated with, you know, suburban domesticity, essentially. And so, yeah, this is the perils of womanhood, man, out of charred bone and stuff yeah. produce this <laughs> yes. dainty object that falls out of fashion. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I think the common thread here is nostalgia and things out of fashion. So which leads us to Dwight's book. Huh. Um, I, I reviewed this week Candy, which is which is now 60 years old, the, the uh, satire of Voltaire's Candide and a sort of satire also of smutty books written by Terry Southern who, of course, wrote the screenplays for Dr. Strangelove and Easy Rider and was the sort of original new journalist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He wrote this book when he was quite young, along with a friend, Mason Hoffenberg, and they were just poor and funny and dumb and young and wanted to write something and make some money. And they they wrote it together, Candy. They sent it back and forth in chapters to each other in the mail, and each wrote a chapter. And I read it when I was young, and I it influenced me in the sense that it's, it's, its humor is so wild and so smart that it was very attractive to me when I was young. And I was scared to read it again, which I did for this Because you were afraid you weren't going to like it exactly. as much. Exactly. As a matter of fact, I wasn't going to review it at all, but I had a book set up to review last week. I won't name the title, but it was kind of a first novel. If it wasn't a first novel, it might as well have been a first novel. And the, Damn, it was right. a first novel. <laughs> and and, and I, the writer is, is unknown. And the one position you don't want to be in as a book critic is, is saying to the readers, 
you know this thing you're never going to hear about? Well, it's terrible. So, you know, why, why bother? And so I figured, you know, I, I needed something else quickly. Here's candy. And I'm so glad I read it because it was the most enjoyable reading experience I've had for a little while. It turns out you are just like you were in your taste. I, I haven't changed at all. I still like Jello. I still like candy. But, uh, you know, one of the things I say in my review is one of the reasons it still lives that it's so loose-limbed. I mean, it's just Terry Southern's other work has gotten a little bit overthought over time, and its humor is a bit strained. And Candy is just, you know, is written fast, but it's a deadline production that works because it was a deadline production. I kind of make a small case for it is, is still readable during our Me Too moment in the sense that the men in it are such fatuous beasts. I mean, I say in the review, they're, they're fit for nothing but gibbering at the moon. But, you know, it's black satire. I mean, it's satire. I mean, Candy is no feminist paragon. Her one goal in life seems to be to lose her virginity. And the men, of course, are happy to be there to assist her, even though the book is all about the protracted ways in which she does not lose virginity as the book goes on. But A, Candy is hilarious. B, it just sort of reads like a rocket. C, there's a there's a wild sex scene every 30 pages. One forgets, actually, when one's a young reader. I, I don't know if you all were this way, but as a young reader, you, you the books you read, the kind of trashy books your parents read, there's a sex scene in them every 30, 40 pages in like this metronomic clock. And you realize... That's not such a bad way to structure a book, certain kind of book, you know? And you kind of swing as if from vine to vine and candy. <laughs> the on, Sydney on, on, Sheldon uh, School exactly, of Criticism or right the here. Mario Puzo or the, I read worse. Um, oh, I read the worst. Oh, but um, the sex scenes, every other chapter in this book, essentially, there's a sex scene or an almost sex scene, I call it. But they're also silly, right? Like they're, they're silly. They're not they're, just they're, to turn you the on. Most like they're actually. But, but yeah, but they, they do turn you on a little bit. They're not. They're not utterly fatuous. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of work also. The, the the most famous line from the book is she picks up this hunchback on Grove Street in the West Village and brings brings him back to her apartment. He basically does wants nothing to do with her, but she ends up screaming, "Give me your hump!" And that's the most famous line in the novel. <laughs> so anyway, my recommendation for this week is Candy by Terry Southern and Mason Hoffenberg. All right. Here's a question for Jan and Pearl. Are you guys also afraid to turn back and reread books that you loved when you were younger? Or do you, you have no, no problem doing I have that? like an actual practice. Like if I'm not so busy reading, what I do is I, for every new book I read, I go back and reread a book. Really? Yeah. So I, I keep... Wow. like a chaser? Yeah. But it's also just like I have this like dream of myself as a reader just to know like that old Flaubert idea, just like the dream of knowing like six books really, really well. And what it's are your hard. six books? Like, that's so boring. That's but, a whole other podcast. But no, but it's this idea of like, you know, like we're just in the business of reading and then reading around the books and it can just feel like you're just activating that one muscle, right? And when you reread, that's when you actually get to sort of, I don't know, at least for me. Like, and have you ever reread something and thought, and my God, different. who was I? I have a lot of it with, I mean, like, I'm so not new in this, but like all of Salinger's stuff, you mm. know, really, mm -hmm. like I've gone back to it. Oh, and I hated sort of, it from the beginning. I didn't hate it. I, I think I was I like, I felt it. very much like I wanted to understand what being an American was. Right. And so I was just like, there's these books about, you know, yeah. and so, I mean, I read them very anthropologically and I think, but I found that I thought they were interesting. I thought they were important. And going back and rereading some of that stuff has been very, you know, even the stuff I responded to has been a little awkward, you know, and yeah, but yeah. Do what you about you? I, not much. I mean, there's, I, I think there's a little bit of fear. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like there's a part of me that feels like if I went back to stuff that I really loved when I was younger, I'm not sure if I would respond to it in the same way. And so I sort of want to keep it pristine yeah. in my mind as something that was really meaningful to me back then and was necessary to who I was. I mean, I don't know if I've changed that much, but mm. I don't know. I think that there, there is. And there's also the time thing. I mean, <laughs> there's that. 
Well, Pamela, you wrote a book so. about this, essentially, going back and looking yeah. at books. Mm-hmm. So what was the book that shocked you the most when you went back that you had like a the most sort of dramatic well, you know, I, I, I didn't, I don't like to reread, honestly, but f- because of the time reason and there's so much still that I want to read that I haven't read. What I did do when I started writing about this, this book of books is I ordered all of the books that I no longer owned that were in my Bob that I wanted to write about. Um, Bob is your book of books. Bob is my book of books. And because for a long time, I I didn't throw away any books, but I fell under the unfortunate influence of my husband, who is a big thrower outer. And I got rid of things that I now regret. So I had to go back and I needed to find not just those books, but the editions of the books that I had. Oh, wow. Um, I had to find, you know, the exact cover. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Preferably like the same year. And what I ended up finding was sort of parallel to the book of books itself, which is that it wasn't actually about what was inside those books. It was about what those books, what that reading experience and the time that I read it and and the way that it influenced me at that time evoked. There was really only one instance in which I got sucked back in and ended up completely rereading something to my chagrin, which was a a Spalding Gray book, uh, Morning, Noon and Night, which I hadn't read since it had come out um, and inadvertently got drawn back in. But in general, I'm not a huge rereader because uh, there's just still so much left to read. Mm. I know. We'll end on that mournful note. (laughs) (laughs) Dwight, Carl, Jen, thanks so much for being here. Thanks. Thank you. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.